All right. Why don't you turn the book of Revelation chapter 2, please. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 to 11. And the message is entitled, The Suffering Church, Smyrna. Uh, we're continuing again, again, the series of the seven churches of Revelation. And we want to look to this church, incredible church, Smyrna, which is the second church. It is the shortest letter of all seven. The messages are applicable, remember, to all of us today and not merely to the churches of John's day. Keep in mind that the seven messages to the seven churches are representative of four things, as we have noted and will continue to repeat. First, it's a local church in John's day, a literal church. Second, it describes a period of church history, and we give you that period. Thirdly, it's a type of congregation that can and will exist throughout the church age. And fourth, is a type of Christian in your personal relationship to the Lord. What kind of a Christian are you? An Ephesian, a Sardian, a Laodicean, what it is. There's also a pattern that we've seen, and it will be repeated through all seven. And it consists of the following. First, there's proclamation, the proclamation. Second is the commendation. Third is the condemnation. Sardis has no condemnation. Our Smyrna here has no condemnation. Then there's exhortation. And fifth, there's application. So Smyrna here is the only one that doesn't have condemnation. Simple. She's suffering. She's being a faithful witness to the Lord. When you're suffering, you don't have time to be playing around. Again, we want to look at... um, our study beginning with the historical background so that we can understand the message to Smyrna and how it is that the Lord associates his words towards her so it makes sense to us. So let's begin with um, historical information about Smyrna. Um, The city of Smyrna um, was located about 40 miles northeast of of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey today is Mir, with a population of about 200,000, a pretty good-sized community. The city had uh, uh, been founded by, uh, as a Greek colony about 1,000 B.C. and was a very wealthy, prosperous city, second to Ephesus' arrival, if you will, with its harbor narrow enough to close it at wartime, which would be a great protection for her. In 600 B.C., the city was destroyed by the Lydians, rebuilt by Lassimachus and Antigonus in 290 B.C., a model city. Smyrna, as a poor city, was successful in exports trade by commanding the mouth of the Hermes River Valley with a direct trade route from India and Persia to Rome. The wealth went through there. It was just a very prosperous time. Smyrna was a beautiful city. Men called it the ornament of Asia, the crown of Asia, the fairest of the city of Ionia. The city was brilliant with great architect, buildings, stadiums for the yearly games, uh, theaters. One of the, um, the largest in Asia Minor, sitting 20,000 on the slope of Mount Pegus in um, 
a flourishing school of science and medicine. In fact, we'll mention the god of Escalapius. That's where you get the emblem of the doctors with the snake on the pole. It's not Moses in the wilderness. It's the god of Escalapius, the god of healing. That's where they get it from. Now, the Acropolis of Mount Pegus was called the crown of garland of Smyrna. Coins describe the city as first of Asia in beauty and in size. The city had a large Jewish population and with her allegiance to Rome, it made it very difficult to live as a Christian. You had persecution from the Christian community because early Christians were all Jewish and they were thought to be renegades, traitors. And then you had, of course, Rome, the pagan empire that went against Christianity at this time and the years following. The name Smyrna is a Semitic origin, meaning bitter. It's derived from its commercial product, myrrh, from a tree that yields and it needs to be crushed to release its fragrance. Think about the words to Smyrna. She's being crushed by persecution and it becomes a sweet fragrance aroma to the Lord. The myrrh was used for perfume, embalming, holy anointing oil for the priests and the purification for women. We get this in Exodus thirty twenty-three, Esther two twelve, in John nineteen fifty-nine. It yielded the fragrance again, being crushed. Nicodemus brought mixture of myrrh and aloes for the burial of Jesus. Matthew mentions the gifts to the Christ child by the Magi's gold, frankincense, and myrrh, symbolic of deity, royalty, and death in Matthew 2.11. Now, the church of Smyrna, without doubt, Paul could have been responsible for the founding of it directly or indirectly. We're not certain, but Paul was over all that region, and much of the work resulted from the ones he had set up. Smyrna covers the period of church history from A.D. 100 to 312. That's when Constantine married the church to the world and commanded everybody to be a Christian. And when we get to Thyatira and Pergamos, we'll see the full development of that. Um, Smyrna, again, is known as a suffering church who was um, being crushed in that sweet smelling aroma again uh, as the Lord looks upon his martyrs. Consequently, it was a pure church, a holy, faithful church, a rich church spiritually, not materially. Um, persecution has never hurt the church. It's only purified it and make it grow. Now, the religion of Smyrna, the city had a famous thoroughfare called the Street of God, which uh, curved around Mount Pegus, 500 feet above the harbor. On either side was a temple, one to the local verities of Sibylle and the other to Zeus. In between the beautiful paved streets that traverse the city from east to west, with as many temples to Apollos, Nemesis, Aphrodite, and Escalapius, or Escalapius, whichever way you want to pronounce it, um, the god of healing. Uh, so again, the pagans always have the variety of gods. It just depends what you need. It meets um, diversity was their philosophy. And, uh, and, and no judgment was to be made. They're all gods in their own right. Smyrna became one with emperor worship also. And the first to build a temple in honor of the emperor 
Tiberius and his mother Julia in A.D. 23. And therefore, they earned a special favor as a free city under Tiberius and the successive emperors. Um, we were kind of a model city of Rome. Smyrna being a center for emperor worship became compulsory under Domitian in A.D. 81 to 96. All had to burn a pinch of incense on the, on the altar to the godhead of Caesar and declare, Caesar is Lord. And then you would receive your certificate that you did that for the year. And then you could go worship anything or anyone you want as long as you didn't bring trouble to Rome. They would leave you alone. But yearly, you had to pledge your dedication of the worship of Caesar. Now, Christians couldn't do this. They could not say Caesar is Lord, so they would be imprisoned, tortured, and killed. Um, much like the time of the Japanese occupation of Korea in 1937 to 40, as they ordered Christians to worship at their Shinto shrines. And when they did not, they killed them, many decapitated, burying the heads on one place and the bodies on another to try to thwart the resurrection. Amazing. Nothing has changed, has it? So this was the historical information about Smyrna. Now, let me read our text, and it'll make sense as we move through it. And to the church, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your worst tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be heard by the second death. The proclamation comes in verse 8. The identity of the recipient, notice of the letter, is to the angel of Smyrna. Uh, the angel, once again, like Ephesus, it means the messenger from God. The context, again, is a person who is over the church, a minister, not an angel, literally. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, um, a disciple of John the Beloved. The church, again, Ecclesia, we have mentioned before the called out of the world into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word appears 115 times in the New Testament, three times in the gospel, 62 times in Paul's letters, 24 times in Acts, two times in Hebrews, once in James, three times in Third John, and 20 times in the book of Revelation. The most numerous is the book of Acts. 24 times, because it's, it's the account of the works of the Holy Spirit through sinners who become saints, which are the church of Jesus Christ. It's real simple. It's the only historical book we have in the New Testament. The second is the book of 1 Corinthians 22 times. And the third is the book of Revelation 20 times. Now, the name Smyrna means bitter, as we stated, yet it produces a sweet fragrance of God, almost a contradiction the command to Smyrna, as to Ephesus, was to identify and address her personal situation and suffering. Have you ever noticed that Jesus is very personal to you and he deals with you, your situation, not your neighbor? He comes to you where you're at. And he deals with you, your suffering, your marriage, your children, whatever it may be. 
the period of uh, church history again, 100 to 312, um, a very long period of time from the first one. The apostles of Jesus were all dead by this time under martyrdom. John is the last, um, and he died through natural death. Now, tradition, as we said in chapter 1, that they attempted to boil John in oil, but he didn't die, and they sent the island of Patmos. He received the revelation, then he became the pastor of Ephesus afterwards. Now, notice the identity of the writer is Jesus Christ. Again, the words are those of Jesus, not John. These things says... The chain of command has been given to us in chapter 1, verse 1. God the Father to the Son, the Son to his angel, the angel to John, John to us in the book of Revelation. The blessings was to the one who reads chapter 1, verse 3. Don't anybody tell you if you're a Christian only a week old that you can't read and study the book of Revelation. You have the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the mind of Christ. What's the problem? You can get into the book of Revelation. The seven messages were to be sent to all seven uh, churches, as we've seen in chapter 1, verse 11. It's always presented in the plural. And the division of the book is given to us, the table of contents in chapter 1, verse 19. The things that they saw, the glorified Christ in chapter 1, the things that are, chapter 2 and 3, the church age, and then the things hereafter metatelta. Once chapter 4 hits, chapter 4 and 5 were rapture, were before the throne of God. Chapter 6 opens up the great tribulation, goes all the way to 19, and then the second coming of Jesus Christ. A threefold division, so we cannot mess it up. Now, the two characteristics that identify Jesus' notice are appropriate to the church as we saw also in Ephesus. The first and the last, which once again is taken from chapter 1, the glorified Christ in chapter 1, verse 17. So all the identity that Jesus gives himself are taken from chapter 1. Ramesses, another commentator, suggests that the term alludes a contrast to Smyrna's um, claim to be the first of Asia in beauty and emperor loyalty, while that only was deserving of Jesus Christ. So there's a sharp contrast here. He is the beginning and the end, the source of all things, as you know. Listen to Isaiah 44, 6. He says, I am the first, the last, and besides me there is no God. That's God's statement about gods. <laughs> he is it. He is the eternal existing one, existing of himself, through himself, by himself. He needs nothing outside of himself. Listen to Isaiah fifty-seven, fifteen. For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who, ha who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The Beatitudes, broken and poverty of spirit. Knowing I'm bankrupt to reserve salvation. I come as I am and depend on the atoning work of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. He depends on nothing outside of himself, apart from himself. He takes full responsibility for everything created through him, for him. He holds everything together. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 in Revelation 4, 11. There's no one like God. He's the only one. He is the preeminent head of the church and the judge of all mankind. One day, every person will stand before God, either in the bema seat of Christ to be rewarded as a Christian or in the white throne judgment to be judged for their sins and to be eternally separated from God. Notice the one who was dead came to life. So once again, going back to chapter 1, verse 18, this is identity. Literally became dead, the historical era stating 
only the past fact. He's not dead any longer. He literally did die in the past in our place. The death of Jesus was not something fabricated, even as the Passover plot was suggested by non-believers who do not believe in Christ. But literally, as he declared from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last, Luke twenty-three forty-six. He literally died for me, for you. Now notice our Lord here identified himself to these persecuted and suffering saints as one who has also suffered but conquered, being able to comfort, for he is the God of all comfort, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, we can come before the throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need. Any time of the day, 3 in the morning, 2 in the evening, it doesn't make any difference. God never turns you away. Remember, Myrrh again was announcing his death and his life of suffering. Matthew 2.11 Wine was mixed with myrrh and offered to him on the cross. Matthew 15.32 uh, Myrrh was mixed with aloes and was for his embalming. Uh, John 19.37 or 39-40 The personal experience of Jesus, the scriptures tell us that he tasted death for everyone, destroying him who had the power of death in Hebrews 2, 9, and 14. So that's one of the very carnal doctrines of the gospel, to be saved, that you believe Jesus literally died for you and took your place and destroyed him who had the power of death. The Lord Jesus, by his death, paid the atoning price, redeemed the laws uh, by becoming sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him in Second Corinthians 5.21. And then the Lord rose from the dead out of the grave three days afterwards. This is the cornerstone of the gospel, the proclamation. Without it, there is no good news. It's just religion. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, you and I should have slept in this morning. We're wasting our time. And we are of all men and women to be most pitied, Paul says. Why? Because that means that we're still in our sins. And we've been lied and deceived. Such is not the case. This was the proclamation to Smyrna. Next comes the commendation in verse 9. Jesus, notice, knew what they were doing and had done in the past the word works, some say, does not exist or appear in what they consider to be the best of manuscripts. You'll have some of your footnotes in your Bibles. They're talking about the Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and maybe one more Alexandrian text. But it's a matter of opinion whether those are the best or not. As you have followed with us through the years, we don't believe they are. And it's a dishonest footnote because of what it should say, but it is found in 5,000 other manuscripts. They don't tell you that. Okay? So it's an intellectual dishonest footnote. Um, the commendation of works here is found in every other church, all six of them. It's hard for me to believe that the suffering church would not have works to be commended for. Of course it would. So how interesting it is that you say, well, this is not found in the best of manuscripts, you remove it. And then the next generation never knows that you removed it. And then you remove other things and pretty soon you have a gospel that's just eliminated from all key things, right? That's intellectual dishonesty. 
comes from the pit of hell. The work of God costs them everything, as we will see, even their very lives. Now notice Jesus knew the tribulation there, verse 9. The word tribulation means oppressing together, pressure. That which causes affliction, that which causes distress. You and I know about that. We live in this world. We're human, even though we're Christians. Um, so often we are prone to think that we have uh, to inform God about our situation or our feelings. Um, but nothing escapes him, Hebrews 4.13. Everything is open and naked to him. Jesus told the disciples that in the world they would have tribulation, but to be a good cheer, he had overcome the world in John 16.33. He gives us that peace, that not like the world gives, but that passes all understanding. John, notice, was a, com- a companion in tribulation, the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ. In the island of Patmos, for the word of God, he told us that in Revelation 1.9. So John is suffering. John has suffered. He's the last of the apostles. Paul knew the experience of persecution and suffering also, if you read his letters, the book of Acts. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, remember the little bread boxes? They put all the positive promises. You ever pull a negative one out? No, because, you, you know, you've got to think positive, right? So you have all this humanism being pulled into the church, and they go along with it, right? This promise is as good as the one that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, if we're Christian, we will suffer. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day, 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul died on the road to Damascus. You were died when you accepted Christ. I died in 1973. My life is to live for Christ. This was and is Paul's last will and testament in 2 Timothy. He's about to get his head cut off. He's going to heaven. He's not in the Marriott. He's not giving you advice that he hasn't lived. This is a faithful saying, he says, and these things I want you to confirm or to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Titus 3.8, good works. We don't do good works to be saved, but because we're Christians, we'll do good works to help and to demonstrate the love of Christ. It's different. If you've never read the Fox's Book of Martyr, I would encourage you to get it. The, uh, the accounts of the first century church of how they persecuted and killed Christians and tortured them and what they went through and their faithfulness. Today's modern version is Jesus Freaks, Volume 1 and 2. This past century, all the things are going on. Even today, Christians are being persecuted, killed in Iran. We get a lot of news about that Farshish and all of those. Book of Hebrews, chapter 11, 34, 37, 38. The world was not worthy of these individuals. They were more than conquerors. Notice Jesus knew their poverty. The word poverty means extreme poverty. Nothing at all. The word is used for the Christians in Macedonia by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 2. Of their deep poverty, yet they abounded in their giving to the poor saints of Jerusalem. And Paul uses that to rebuke the Corinthians. You know, you guys said a year ago you want to give. You haven't given. These guys are poor to the bone. And yet they wouldn't stop us from giving. They, they said, don't do that, Paul. Our Jewish community gave us our Messiah, our scriptures. The least we can do is help them with the little that we have. Wow. The word is used here 
of their spiritual poverty, but it's also used the poverty of Jesus. He took on himself in order that we might become rich in him in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Listen, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that through, uh, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich, spiritually speaking, children of God. Now, the pressure of persecution for their faith no doubt affected the finances as they were boycotted and marked as Christians, bringing financial ruin to many of them. This is a reality of Christianity all over the world, not here in America yet, but we see it already taking effect and coming. Okay? You can worship and believe in anything you want. You'll be thought of as brilliant, but you tell them you're a Christian and you're going to pay a price. It begins with the academic world. It goes into the media, to our politicians, and now it's moving to legislation. That's just where it's going. And so they would not be able to get jobs. They would be outcasts. They would be marked. They'd lose everything. And this has been the history of the church everywhere in the world when they turn to persecute Christians. Now, notice still in 9, Jesus knew that they were rich. How could Jesus say this to them? This was the church that had received persecution and was going to experience a lot more persecution from 64 to 312 A.D. until Constantine marries the church to the world and then makes it a state religion and commands everybody to be a Christian, and those are the foundations of the Catholic Church. And again, we'll get to that when we get there. Now, the church was told, but you are rich. Plusios is the word, which means a Christian virtues and eternal possessions, meaning the certainty of spiritual well-being, not possessions. The context indicates that. We get our English word plutocrat, a wealthy class that controls a government. Those that have wealth, they control it. The saints of the church of Smyrna had little or no money bank, but an abundance of treasures in heaven. Paul puts it this way. We have the unsearchable riches of Christ as our blessing in Ephesians 3.8. You can't exhaust his resources, spiritually speaking. Now notice the church of Smyrna stood in sharp contrast to the church of Laodicea, the apostate church, when we get there in chapter 3, verse 17. The world thinks that the measure of a man's success or value is on the abundance of things um, that you possess. And Jesus warned his disciples over and over again all the time about this. The philosophy has not changed. It's who, who do you see bumper stickers, the one who dies with the most toys wins. What a stupid sticker. You won't be able to ride your toys in hell. Paul says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing all things, 1 Corinthians 6.10. This is the believer. This has been the history of the church. The author to the Hebrews reminds them of how they had endured the spoiling of their material things for the name of Christ in Hebrews 10.34. 
In the book of Hebrews, the great exhortation of those who are looking back and they're waning and, they, and they're, they're thinking about going back to the world. He says, consider all that you've sacrificed, all that you lost. Are you going to let it go now? And so we're to exhort one another to abide, to press towards the mark, to stay in Christ. Remember God's perspective through James, James 2.5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those, here it is, who love him? What's going to hold you between faith and hope is agape love, your love for God. If your love for God is not greater than the world, your faith will wane and you'll have no hope. Faith and hope is put together and held together by God's love, your love for God. What holds you to your wife, your husband, your love? If you don't love them more than what comes into your life, you'll be going for what comes into your life. And you'll be disloyal. It's real simple. We're not to store up treasures here on earth, but heaven. But the meaning that our, um, our hearts, it literally is that they don't depend on those things. In other words, nothing wrong with the money or material or this and that. It's living for those things. Yet we as Americans, we are different than the majority of the church. The majority of church of history have not have great wealth. Not real Christians I'm talking about when they're persecuted. We've had the freedom of speech and, you know, the First Amendment and, and, and freedom of religion by the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. So we've been able to do that. But to be a steward of what we have, that we might be examples to others and benevolent to others, but not simply to hoard for ourselves. That is never the Christian. Um, Matthew six nineteen through 21 is very important as Jesus speaking there on the Sermon on the Mount. Now remember, the rich steward that trusted and depended on his riches without considering the true riches. He says, you know... I don't know what I'll do. I'll, I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and I'll just say to my soul, have ease and take time for yourself. And Jesus says, now fool, tonight your soul is required you. And then to whom will all these things belong to? Luke 12, 16 through 21. You can have all the money in the world. I know a guy who came to Christ and he walked with Christ and God turned his life around. A longshoreman, him and his wife. And they walked with God for years and they got back into the world and just destroyed their lives, destroyed the lives of their children. I just got a text. He's in hospice. They've given him two to three days to live. All that incredible money, a longshoreman, all that retirement, all those benefits. What good does it do you? Absolutely nothing. Nothing wrong with them. But when you don't walk with God... And you go back to the world and away from him? Wow. Jesus knew the blasphemy. Notice they were experiencing still in nine. The word blasphemy means slander or speech that is injurious to another's good name. It can be towards man or towards God. The context will indicate that. Now, notice the Lord tells them that the individuals say they were Jews, but were not. Many say that they're Christians today, but they're not. And some go back in the world, and some are not Christians at all. These were those who assemble, as the word synagogue indicates, to congregate. And they plan together to bring their slanderous, vicious attacks against the Christian. The reference is not so much 
that they met in a literal synagogue, but only they identified themselves with the old economy of Israel to bring persecution to the Christian. If you go through the book of Acts, you see this. Paul would go to the synagogue, and then they would persecute him. The scriptures are clear that not all who say they were of Israel were of Israel. A person was not a Jew by the outward mark of circumcision, as Paul says, but circumcision of the heart in Romans 2, 28 and 29. They being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God, Paul says in Romans 10, 3. And many people who are religious, moral, and ethical want to do that. Well, I think I can stand before God. I think I'm good enough. You don't, you don't, you don't understand what you're saying. Not all are Israel, but only those who are of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promises of the Messiah. Galatians 3, 16 and 29. The book of Romans is very, very clear also. Now notice still in 9, the Lord identifies them as being of the synagogue of Satan. Pretty heavy words. You think I'm bad. Okay? This is the first time it is revealed in the revelation here, the ultimate source of Christian persecution. Who is it? It's satanic. Just like anti-Semitism is from Satan. Same thing. The revelation will unfold even more as it progresses about Satan in chapter 3, chapter 9, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 20. He's the source behind the entire thing. He will use people as instruments, nations, governments, individuals, but he's the source, the ultimate source. The Lord Jesus told the Jews of this day, listen carefully, um, in John eight forty four, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now today... Who, when's the last time you heard in the news or an interview, they lied? No, they misspoke. Really? How dumb is that? Remember, the word devil means slander. He was the source of the blasphemy at Smyrna. He was the slander in the book of Genesis against God and then turned on Adam and Eve also. He's a liar. Notice the Lord Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church in Matthew 8, 16, 18. The first century church was evidence of this, and persecution has never destroyed the church of Jesus Christ. Study its history, not the American history, but history around the world. The church in China during Mao's reign, as you know, the Cultural Revolution, they imprisoned Christians, killed Christians. They took all the books away, all educators. Now, interesting. Now, we're, go we, we're rebelling against capitalism, and China's going to capitalism. And you know what? During Mao's reign, he just hated Christians. He tortured them, imprisoned them, put them in camps, re-educational camps. And yet the church flourished. It went underground. God had to kick the missionaries out to make the church grow under persecution. Figure that out. Wow. Modern day Rwanda, the Sudan, at the turn of the century, during Clinton's time of presidency, as you remember, 
the UN allowed Christian persecution under Islam. And they walked away from Christians as they begged for their lives. And they allowed them, those people to just cut them, butcher them with machetes. Or to shoot them in the head with a bullet they would pick. They filled the rivers with Christian bodies. Cutting their legs off. Butchering them. Christian persecution. That wasn't that long ago. The only thing that ruins the church is compromise and luxury. Let me say that again. The only thing that ruins the church is compromise and luxury. When it's depended upon, it's lived for. The worst thing that ever happened to the church was the marriage of the church to the world to make it a state church by Constantine. We'll see that when we get uh, Pergamos. No longer depending on God, but on man, the arm of flesh. Look at our buildings. Look at our money. Look at what we have. Look at the people we have speak. Look, you know, just like the world. Wow. No longer having a living daily relationship, but becoming deaf and blind, depending on the systems of man and the sure patterns and pointing to their own glory, their own strength, their own popularity, if you will. The kingdom parables are believed to run as parallel to the seven churches. If you can get a hold of uh, uh, Professor Lehman Strauss, Dr. Lehman Strauss, he used to be a professor Biola back in the early days, the 70s, uh, when they were right on gospel-wise. Okay? Today, you, it, it's so convoluted. I, I doubt if you could find um, a book of R.A. Torrey in their library. He's the founder of that school. <laughs> he full, believed fully in the gifts and everything else. The Lord has no condemnation, notice, for the church of Smyrna or Philadelphia. Only commendation. Smyrna was a suffering church. Smyrna had no time to play games. Only remember their Lord and depend upon him. This was a commendation to Smyrna. Notice verse 10. Now comes the exhortation. There's always, once we listen, we need to be exhorted to be doers, Right? The church was not to be afraid of the coming suffering. He talks to them about their condition. Do not fear those which you are about to suffer or those things you're about to suffer. Literally, stop being afraid. This is repeated as a command throughout the scriptures to men and women. Why? Because they were afraid. They're human like you and I. You have been afraid at times in your life as a Christian. I have been afraid about the circumstances situation. I have to bring my thoughts in captivity. I have to go to God. I have to go to the word of God. Lord, direct, guide me, strengthen me, give me wisdom. Let me trust you. Their fear was over the things that were about to come upon them in the future. They had suffered in the past. They were suffering in the present. And they were going to suffer in the future. Oh, great. As Christians, we understand this. When you heard the gospel, Jesus says, deny yourself, lose sight of yourself, pick up your cross, that's an instrument of death, and follow me. He didn't paint a road of roses. He didn't say, well, you know, you're kind of tired of your life. You want to just make it a little better. Why don't you come to me? It's not the gospel. The gospel is that you know you're under God's wrath. You're an enemy of God. 
and that he died for your sins. And if you believe that he did, you can call upon him so he can change your evil heart and make you a child of God. That's what the gospel is. The viciousness of Rome and the manner of instilling fear by torturous death was well known and witnessed by all. When I was in Spain um, just about 10 years ago, um, they were celebrating the 500 year of Columbus, the Catholic Church. And in the plaza of Madrid, they brought all the instruments of torture to the Catholic Church. And they, they didn't apologize, they displayed them as trophies. Wow, what a misrepresentation of Christianity. No repentance. We must remember God will never ask of us anything that he, we cannot endure. Not allowing us to be tested more than we're able, but always giving us a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We must never forget that God never puts us through anything that he has not gone through himself. He first does it. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do from the cross. You say, wow, but he was God. Stephen, Father, forgive them as he's being stoned to death. Wow. He'll never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13, 5 says. He'll be with us to the ends of the age, Matthew 28, 20. He's faithful. Notice still in 10, the church was to know that it was going to be a time of testing. The devil was about to throw some of them in prison. Uh, he already told them that he is the source of their persecution. Um, he had told the disciples that when they would be brought before the magistrates, that the Holy Spirit would give them the words that very moment in Luke twelve eleven. Listen, now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. And he goes on to say, for the Holy Spirit will give you the words that very instant. We get records of that and witness of that of Farshish and those who are in prison in Iran today. How God ministers and uses them right on the spot. This has always been the record and the witness of the church throughout the church age. The purpose was that they be tested. The word tested means to make a trial for the purpose of ascertaining quantity and quality at the same time. What a person thinks and how he or she will behave about themselves. The same word is used of Jesus as he was tempted of the devil in the wilderness in a good sense to reveal character in Matthew 4.1. The word is used in a bad sense when Ananias and Sapphira agreed together to tempt God in Acts 5.9. So the context will tell you whether that testing is for evil or for good. The believer then is to expect and understand that the trials of our faith are normal and intense in the life of the Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16 is very clear about this. Listen to him. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fire trials which are to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you 
suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. He says, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. That's the type of God we serve. The time period was again, notice, for 10 days. The 10 days being interpreted, the 10 Roman edicts, or symbolically to represent a short time. Either one. Let me give you the 10 edicts of persecution. You have Nero, 54 AD. Dominion, Domitian, 81. Trojan, 98. Antonius, 117. Maximina, 235. Decius, 249, Valerian, 254, Aurelian, 270, Severus, 195, um, Diocletian, 284. You have all 10 of them. Long time persecution, one right after the other. The manner was diverse. Nero dipped men in pitches and tar and crucified them and set them on fire, boiled them in oil. Poured hot lead on their bellies, burned them at the stake. They crucified men, placed them uh, in public places to intimidate others. They um, they put them inside animal skins, sewed them up, and then tossed them out so animal uh, dogs could just just mutilate them. Diocletian tried to destroy the scriptures by public burnings of the scriptures, but yet he's gone. The scriptures are still here. Polycarp was in his 90 years of age and was asked to recant. And he said this, and I'm quoting, quote, 86 years I have served my Lord and he has never wronged me. How can I deny him now? The soldier asked him to recant and spend his last days in place of uh, uh, peace for the flames would not, would, would be hot. Which Polycarp responded, not merely as those you will experience. Wow. Lord, let me be like that, whatever may happen. In the third century, as you know, they fed Christians to the lions. Some of the accusations presented for, before Christians was this. They were, cannibal, they were cannibals because of the, um, the Lord's Supper. Eat my body and drink my blood. So they were accused of cannibalism, of orgies because of the love feasts. They were, they were a bunch of perverts. Um, dividing family which that is true because of the conversion of their life. Many times their family considered them dead or didn't want anything to do with them. So it would mess up a family. Some of you have come to the Lord and it's messed up your relationship with your families. They said, oh, now you've, you've, you've changed your religion. And they're not happy about you being a Christian. It's difficult. Um, being politically disloyal because they only had one Lord. They couldn't burn the pinch of incest to Caesar. These are some of the accusations. And the last one is pyromaniacs because they said that the judgment of God at the end of the world would be by fire. And therefore Nero took advantage of this and when he set Rome on fire, he blamed the Christians for the fire. What's new? Christians are blamed for all kinds of stuff. We are, we are the obstructionists to American society today, right? As well as conservative veterans and anybody who doesn't believe or go along with policies, right? Nothing new under the sun. The question is, why does God allow it? Because God is sovereign. Can the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? No. But he can do as he wills, when he wills, whenever he wills, to who he wills. And we know that as he allows it to his children, 
He does it out of perfect knowledge, perfect love, and for his glory, and he will be sufficient. Wow. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. Psalm 116, 15 says. Paul tells us it's for our discipline. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. He gave himself a black eye to keep his body under lest he be disqualified. God's way is to keep us humble sometimes to some of those things. And when he chastened the Corinthians, he's made some of them sick. Some he took their life in 1 Corinthians 11, 30 to 32. Paul the apostle cried out to the Lord three times to take this big stake and this flesh away from him. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, my grace is sufficient. And so I will gladly glory, Paul says, my weakness to the glory of God. I may be strong. But also for our perfection, James 1, 1 through 3, that I patient have a perfect work, the testing your faith, that it come to perfection. And also to attest to the power of God, as we see through the book of Acts, over and over and over again. Now notice the church was to be faithful to Jesus then. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And they were being faithful, but they're exhorted to continue to do so. The word... Faithful there, pistos, it means one who has kept his plighted faith, worthy of trust, one that can and is reliable. G. Campbell Morgan points out that the word faithful is from the root, which means to be convinced. Are you convinced that Jesus Christ is God who became man, died for your sins, rose from the dead, sits at the right hand of the Father, he has forgiven your sins, that he's sufficient for everything that comes into your life, and he's coming back for you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that from the bottom of your heart? If you don't, your love for you will be greater. And when the pressure's on, you'll, you'll, you'll vote for you. It's just the way it is. The same word is used by Paul as he reminds us, it is he, Jesus, who is faithful to call us in 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Peter, using the word, reminds us to commit ourselves to God as a faithful creator. Listen, in our sufferings, 1 Peter 4.19. In our sufferings as a faithful creator. The extreme cost is the request. That's the separation from the soul and the spirit from our body. That removes us from this tent to places in the presence of God, Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, immediately. Um, they were to remember that Jesus has been dead in the past, but he's alive now, and had conquered death and hell and the dead, for he holds the keys of Hades and death, Revelation 1, 18. Notice the promise is that he will give the individual what? The crown of life, verse 10. The word crown, Stephanos, refers to the victor's crown, joy, festivity. They will be given to the overcomer, but they will all be placed at the Lord's feet, as we've seen in chapter 4, verse 10, because he did it all for us and through us. Those in Smyrna would be familiar with the term, the crown of Smyrna, which no doubt alluded to the beautiful skyline formed around the city by the hill Pegus, with um, the stately public buildings uh, and its surrounding slopes on its sides. So here's a, a parallel to that, the crown. The crown usually was a garland of flowers that were chiefly worn in the worship of pagan gods, such as Sibylle or Bacchus. That's the, uh, the party god 
the Buddha god of wine. He celebrated in spring break all the time. And who was uh, pictured on the coin with the crown of battlement, destruction, the party god, Bacchus. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he has tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them who love him. There it is, James 1.12, 1 Peter 4.5, who love him. It seems that many times we must wear the crown of affliction before we can appreciate the crown of victory. And if you've lived any amount of time as a Christian, you understand this. And in this world, especially if you're married, before the sweetness can come, sometimes it's that bitterness, those difficulties. Our Lord is an example of the crown of thorns as it was placed upon them in mockery, yet he was going to redeem the world. In the world, everything that seems to be good, pleasurable, and can, you can have right now, appears to be so sweet at the moment, but often it's turned into real bitterness for the rest of your life and then eternity. While in the Lord, some of the most bitter things, though they don't make sense and I don't understand them, in obedience, they turn to sweetness and to the glory of God. What a difference. This was the exhortation, the Smyrna. Does that mean they weren't doing it? No, they were. He's just encouraging them to keep on doing what you're doing. Then comes lastly the application. Look at verse 11. There must be application, otherwise the message is worthless. The declaration is an invitation for everyone. There must be willingness to listen. There is a sense of responsibility and accountability on what was heard. There is also then culpability to every person who does not listen. To those that much is given, much more is required. They will have greater judgment. The words, he who has an ear, were favorite words of Jesus. There's responsibility and accountability and culpability. Notice the declaration as an invitation to obey what the Spirit says to the churches. The word here, akuo, means to endow with faculty of hearing. In other words, you're not deaf. We get our word acute, acute hearing, very keen, sensitive hearing. Literally, let him accurately and effectively hear. Jesus says, take heed how you hear and what you hear. The obedience is not limited to the message to the church of Smyrna, but to all seven Messages and the entire book of Revelation, the word church is in the plural. The Spirit is the speaker in the person of Jesus, the one Jesus sent to represent him. And he would never, ever speak of himself or bring glory to himself, only Jesus. Be careful when people glorify the Holy Spirit and speak more of the Holy Spirit than Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not speak of himself. He speaks of Jesus, speaks of his word, brings to our mind the word of God. He never speaks of himself. Notice still in 11, the declaration is an invitation with promise of reward. The promise of the crown of life has already been declared as a promise to those who are faithful unto death. The one to receive the reward is the overcomer. Mark it well. It is the present participle, timeless. It is the faith of the Christian that overcomes the world. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. The overcomer should not be heard of the second death. Mark it well. He or she will be exempt from the second death at the white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verse 6, 13 through 14, 21, 8. Very, very clear. Three times in that last book, that last, second to last chapter, 
Very important. Listen to the first one. Blessed and holy is he who has part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with them a thousand years. It is eternal separation from the presence of God. Revelation 20 verse 6. The first resurrection is a period and time that runs from Pentecost to the end of the tribulation. Look at the second sex. Revelation 20, 13 through 14. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, Revelation 20, 13 and 14. Now, do you think this is exaggeration? Do you think it's a lie? It's so serious, he's saying it three times here. It is the experience of the unbeliever to die twice, physically and spiritually, and be born once. While the believer is born twice, physically and spiritually, and dies once, except for the generation that is raptured. They're the only exception. We have passed from death unto life. Then notice the last one, Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderer, the sexually immoral, the sorcerer, the idolaters, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Three times in this last part. It's serious. Hell and eternity is serious. As myrrh was used to perfume holy oil and bombing, but it came about by the process of being crushed. So the church of Smyrna became a sweet-smelling fragrance unto the Lord, and they became the holiness of God and became part of the church preserved by God's love, never to be decaying, never to be deteriorating. The church grew. Today, Smyrna is for the most part China, Africa, Cuba, places where she's persecuted. In 1998, I received a letter from a ministry that is going on in China, as I usually do, and it um, told me of a 21-year-old girl that was uh, arrested and gathered at a house church. Listen carefully. Her skull was fractured. She was beaten so severe that her breast area, that she has a uh, heart condition now, they're telling me. One of her kidneys uh, burst, yet she lives silently in her bed in the hospital. As an old brother came to comfort her, uh, he was attempting to find words to comfort her, recognizing that she said, she said this to him, quote, This is what God has allowed. I am grateful now in this bed because of his name. I am here. So don't trouble your heart for me, but please remember those who treated me and accused me to be in bed. Please pray for them, but not me. This is, this, this is past century at the end. Another brother was in prison and did not know why God allowed it, even becoming very sick himself. But there was a man in the cell under um, the uh, most deplorable conditions, being paralyzed and very sick. He was unable to care for himself, and he constantly had defecated on himself to the point that his pants had deteriorated completely. He helped this man and cared for him and told him that he did not... Um, he did not do it because he was no good, because he was good, but because Jesus loved him and God also loved him. 
the man responded by saying, you do not have to speak anymore. There was nobody, nobody tried to come up to me the past year, but not you. You reached me right away, and as you came to me in the past year, there were lots of people that passed by in the past, but there was nobody like you, and you did come. The time you moved and, and towards me, since that time, I was ready to open my heart to you and believe you're Jesus. The author of the letter says, quote, our, Christ, our Chinese Christian friends, they often quote John twelve twenty four. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. May we endure the bitter things of life and allow them to be the sweet fragrance to Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. Remember to stop being afraid. Jesus has been where you have been, where you are, or where you will be. Remember, Jesus has conquered death in Hades. Remember to be faithful unto death. This is the application to Smyrna. Wow. The entire message of the church of Smyrna is to be faithful, suffering unto death. The message speaks of a local church in John's day, literal church. The message speaks of a period of history, 100 to 312 A.D. The message speaks of a type of church that can and will exist throughout the church age from Pentecost to the rapture. And the message speaks of a type of Christian in every church. You and I can find out the type of church we're in and the type of Christian we are as we move through these seven churches. This one has no condemnation, only commendation. She's suffering. She's trusting, depending, and drawing from the grace and the love and the mercy of God. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love, for your grace over our life. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace, Lord, and we pray even now, those that are here and those that are listening over the Internet, that you would minister unto them your love and how you want to save them, Lord. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Did you understand that as a sinner, the wrath of God rests upon you? That you are an offense, you're a sinner. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It separates us from God. But God loved you so much that he died for your sins, that if you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, that you can call upon to be forgiven, and he will change your life, give you a new heart, a new mind, and he will make you a child by the grace of God through faith. If this is your desire, whether you're here in the balcony or over the Internet, this is your prayer repentance. You can ask him in your heart right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray.